Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. This is the first episode of the year and of the decade. I hope you all had a wonderful new year. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Lad Keith, an assistant professor in planning and chair of sustainable built environments at the University of Arizona here in Tucson. Lad is a friend and someone I get to connect with frequently. He's a leader in this space and increasingly doing work nationally. In this episode, we take a deep dive on the issue of extreme heat and climate change. It's my first episode focused on this issue, and that in itself represents a big gap on my part. Extreme heat is the leading cause of death in relation to climate change impacts, and as Lad will explain, many experts are working on this as the climate heats up. Okay, so upcoming shows. I have multiple episodes in the works. I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Jesse Keenan, a regular on the pod, about a financial and technical information arms race in providing climate services. I'm also in some early discussions about covering the Australia wildfires and what can be done to help governments adapt to increasing fire risk. Some pretty traumatic footage coming out of Australia with communities getting destroyed and the catastrophic damage occurring in the native wildlife. More on that soon. I'll also be headed to Massachusetts in the coming months to cover coastal adaptation, working with the group, the trustees. Looking forward to that. So before we jump into the episode, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I'm going to keep mentioning this. You've probably heard it in the last couple episodes. I'm going to be hosting live talk shows on Simpatico TV. Simpatico Studios is a new software television company that produces live stream talk shows about important business and social problems policies, and innovations. I will be anchoring, appropriately, the Climate Adaptation Channel, where I'll interview academics, policymakers, journalists, researchers, and climate adaptation professionals just like yourself. Simpatico is an invite-only professional network, and I'd like to personally extend an invite to all adapters interested in joining a community of peers. Our television shows will be live-streamed, meaning that you can interact directly with me, my guest, and other community members in chat during our interviews. I'd also like to invite adapters to join me as a guest on my upcoming pilot episodes. We're in the pilot generation mode. If you have a specific problem, policy, best practice, research, or program that you'd like to highlight to your peers, we are ready for your debut on Simpatico. Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. In the show notes, you'll find a link to request an invite to Simpatico. Yes, I know this seems like something very new and different for me. I want you to check out the link to learn more. It's something I've been doing parallel with the podcast, but it'll be an opportunity to have a lot more conversations than I do here on the pod. And again, we're in the process of recording pilot episodes. Maybe you and I can have that next conversation. So check out the link in my show notes to learn more. I hope to hear from you. Okay, folks, let's jump into this discussion on extreme heat with Dr. Lad Keith. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I'm actually recording this in person, which is a rare treat when I do interviews. I'm talking with Dr. Lad Keith. Lad is the Assistant Professor in Planning and Chair of Sustainable Built Environments at the University of Arizona. Hey, Lad. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Welcome to the U of A. I love coming to campus. I actually live here in Tucson with Lad, and on occasion, Lad will invite me to some presentations or even I did a guest lecture for one of his classes. And so it's a treat to get out of my pajamas and out of the house and someplace real. It's been a while, but you've actually been on the podcast before. What episode was that? Yeah. So that was the holiday end special for 2018, right? Right. You were with Sean Martin. We actually did that in person too over at my house. That was fun. It's been a while. So I've been meaning to have you on for a while. And here we're going to be talking about extreme heat. We're going to learn all sorts of things about extreme heat because this is what you do. But maybe you could give a little bit more background about yourself. You know, tell, you know, we're here at the University of Arizona, but what's the program? What's the department and sort of your background here? Yeah, thanks, Doug. I'm glad to have you here. I am an assistant professor in planning, like you mentioned. And uh, before I came back to academia, I was a practicing planner. I look at how urban planners in the planning profession look at climate change. And so a lot of that deals with climate action planning, both on the mitigation and adaptation side. I teach for the urban planning program here at the graduate level. And then I run a sustainable built environments undergrad degree that's in person and fully online. I'm always complaining on the podcast about universities lacking adaptation programs, but the University of Arizona actually is quite advanced compared to a lot of universities, right? I mean, it's just not your planning department, but there's other adaptation things going on. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we kind of take it a, a mainstream approach with adaptation education. So we don't have a specific adaptation degree, but a lot of our degrees have um, adaptation courses. And we have a global change minor at the PhD level that a lot of students study at it. So let's jump into this. We're here to talk about extreme heat. And it's occurred to me, people always make recommendations on topics that I should cover. And for whatever reason, I have not touched upon extreme heat. And we're going to get into this but it's like the number one killer associated with climate change of people. This is a very big deal, very serious issue. And so we're going to just give a primer on this. You're going to kind of walk us through the work that you do, but also some of the bigger issues around extreme heat. But I really want this to be the fundamentals of extreme heat. And I think people sense they know what extreme heat is, but really in what is extreme heat in the context of what we're talking about here? Yeah, great question. So simply stated, extreme heat is heat that is hotter than normal. And so in the Southwest, it's always obviously been hotter than the rest of the country. But extreme heat for us is increasing heat waves and increasing temperatures in the daytime and the nighttime. Extreme heat in the temperate Northeast might look a little bit different. Um, but it's just the general idea that places are getting hotter and that's having a, having more impact on people in the cities. And it, I, I guess, too, the sort of fingerprint of climate change, people like, OK, this area is hot, but it's additionally hot because of climate change. And what are those fingerprints associated with climate change? Yeah, so I would say let's step taking a step back. So there's kind of two things that we'd want to look at with extreme heat. So the first is obviously climate change with global average temperatures increasing. Obviously, at the local level, that increases temperature and the duration and frequency of heat waves that we look at. But then another big factor for extreme heat that we need to look at, too, especially in urban areas, is the urban heat island effect. So the UHI, and a lot of people are familiar with it, but it's the idea that the built environment itself, the way that we've constructed it and the waste heat from cars and air conditioners make cities warmer than their rural countryside, sometimes by as much as um, 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, and so the, these these terms, sea level rise, extreme heat, these are technical terms that describe some of these climate impacts. I see some of those reports where, okay, Atlanta has currently has 30 days over 95 degrees and with climate change in 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, I'm just making these stats up, but you know what yeah. I'm talking about. They'll have 45 days over 95 degrees. Is that an example of extreme heat or is that something different? It's just elevated temperatures by on average. Is, are those two different things? I would say they can be the same thing. Again, extreme heat is kind of a general term that just describes the phenomenon of heat as a risk that we're increasingly concerned about. So from from climate change and then from the urban heat island effect. And I guess just by the issue, as things keep getting warmer, we'll have to redefine extreme heat anyway, right? It'll be like, it'll be 10 degrees warmer 30 years from now. It's like, well, what's the extreme heat 30 years from now? It's just a, you keep moving the curve up. Yeah. And that's one of the tricky things about extreme heat compared to other climate risks is that it is very much dependent on kind of what people are acclimated to in their local area. What's extreme heat to New York City is going to be very different than what's extreme heat to Tucson. And then you take humidity to an, into account and kind of whether people have air conditioners or not. All of those kind of local adaptations that people have already made even before climate change was an issue people thought about. Okay, we're going to get into the impacts of extreme heat, especially in urban areas. But you'd mentioned this briefly, but this notion of urban heat island effect, I've heard about this for years. I've worked in environmental groups and smart growth. Urban heat was always this issue, try to mitigate that. And that's been around for decades. The issue of urban heat is, I mean, are you somewhat fortunate too, I guess, with extreme heat? It's almost been a trial run on kind of true adaptation planning, trying to deal with the issues of urban heat. Yeah, so that's a great question. One, one of the interesting things about the urban heat island effect is that we've actually known about it since 1818. So Luke Howard was a meteorologist back in London and did a study that basically kind of confirmed that the urban heat island was something that existed. So that's almost like two centuries ago of knowing about the urban heat island effect. But it, it really hasn't been, I would say, into the last 10 years that we've really seriously started to think about how we can plan for it differently. And I would say my guess is that climate change and kind of the increasing impacts and the increasing awareness of extreme heat across cities um, outside of places that were already hot is something that people are starting to think about more. I, I lived in the Atlanta area for a while and urban heat planning for it was an issue. And a lot of it had to do with like everyone moving out to the suburbs. And then the, the inner city was really where things got really hot. Does climate change 
especially considering this as a planner, offer a newfound sense of urgency to do that better planning that, you know how it is. Some cities do it relatively well. Others are just, it's, it's a voluntary kind of thing versus you really need to do this to save lives. Yeah, so that's actually one of the reasons why I got into climate change and um, how it's impacting the urban planning profession. So climate change has obviously been a topic that folks have been writing about and practicing for a couple for two decades, maybe more in some cases, but has really come to the forefront in urban planning the last decade or so. When I was studying climate change, even like 2010, all of the focus was on sea level rise and maybe a little bit on wildfires, but mostly sea level rise and flooding and those kind of associated risks, because that's what people were observing on the coasts. And it was much more um, kind of the present threat that people were thinking about that with hurricanes, um, Katrina and Sandy. So a lot of the focus has been um, in urban planning on, on those kind of the first line of climate change impacts. One of the interesting things is extreme heat is a little bit of a different climate impact because you can't see it. It's invisible. It has taken cities a little bit longer to realize that it has impacts that they should care about um, outside of places that were already hot, like the Southwest. And I think um, in the last couple of years, especially as the heat waves have been increasing, um, a lot more organizations and cities are starting to think about it seriously. So I'd say kind of in comparison to the other impacts from climate change, it's a relatively new risk that people are really taking seriously. So you kind of, it's interesting because you look at we've understood the urban heat island for quite a while but kind of add that with climate change and people are starting to look back at what we know about the urban heat island effect and kind of considering those two things together in the planning perspective i'm always picking on miami and that's my home state of florida and i know you've recently done some work there but it you know it's occurring to, to me right now sea level rise has always been like all right miami's toast because of sea level rise and i guess i haven't tracked the what are the future projections of extreme heat on Miami? And is that actually a bigger threat in the short term to the city than sea level rise? Yeah, so I was invited to Miami to lead an Urban Land Institute panel looking at um, increasing the resiliency for the urban waterfront in the June of 2018, 2019. And it was interesting because they were certainly focused on sea level rise and flooding, but they also asked us to look at extreme heat too, with the same idea that they knew that it was a threat, but they weren't really sure how to incorporate it into some of the stuff that they were looking at. I would say both are equally of concern, and both are things that they're currently taking very seriously. And with Miami, it's not just the temperature, but it's the it's the humidity is really impacting the amount of public health that it could really impact. I grew up in Florida. It's murderously hot in Miami. <laughs> I just I can adding ten degrees on top of that doesn't sound like fun. Okay, let's so let's talk about some impacts of extreme heat. And I guess I, I what's sort of the best way to kind of explain those, but I, the one that kind of is front and center is just the effect on public health. So kind of give some background on what extreme heat means for that. Yeah, absolutely. So extreme heat. So the number one thing that a lot of folks talk about is that it's actually the number one weather related killer in the United States. So kind of consistently, whether we have hurricanes or not, if you look at the trends, more people die of heat directly and um, certainly of heat associated deaths a year um, than any other weather related impact. So, so certainly um, if you're just looking at mortality, heat is something that we should be concerned about. Another thing that I like to think about a little bit more broadly is quality of life and public health. If it gets hotter, children might have to stay indoors and can't go play outside, which has direct impact on kind of their activity levels. And think about like quality of life, like are you able to go around um, and walk through your neighborhood, take your dog out? You know, we're trying to get people to live in denser places for a lot of sustainability reasons to help mitigate climate change and other things. And those are things that as a planner, I think about um, we're trying to get people on bicycles walking in denser downtowns. And if it's getting hotter, that's kind of a counteracting effect for some of the goals that a lot of cities have set out for themselves. A lot of people look at public health, you know, they track things, people, you know, people die of heart attacks, they, people die of bicycle deaths. And so, you know, they, they do track ex deaths associated with extreme heat. Are you aware of people associating that with climate change that climate? Because right now we're dealing with the climate that's impacted by climate change. It's not a future thing. So heat waves that we're dealing with right now, how do you pull out what exactly is the fingerprint of climate change? But it's there no matter what it's it, we're dealing with it. Are people, especially in planning or public health, tying these sort of mortalities to climate change or is it, is it not, the narrative's not really spoken that way? 
That's a good question. So I'm certainly not a public health expert, but I've worked with public health folks and kind of extreme heat. When you're looking at it, you have to you have to look at the public health components for sure. From what I understand, when public health agencies record deaths, traditionally, heat has been very underrepresented. And I think that's true for most of the country still. If you die of a heart attack and it happens to be during a heat wave, most places will still record that as just a heart attack. And then you can imagine other types of mortality that's associated with that too. Arizona is actually one of the leaders in the country just because we've been hot naturally and have kind of had to think this through for a lot longer with making sure that if we record something as a heart attack as the cause of death, we also look at the heat related impacts of that and um, potentially tag it as a heat-related death, too. So I know some other states and public health agencies are looking at what Arizona's done to better record and kind of understand what the impact of heat actually is. So I'd say kind of going from that, so we're kind of already behind the ball on just recording heat deaths as heat deaths, right? But certainly the public health sector is thinking about climate change. And I know most of the folks that I've talked to related to public health and heat are very aware of the climate change implications of that. And so whether or not it's being recorded as that, the public health officials, many of them are kind of thinking through the climate change impacts. Right. And I guess what I'm getting at, too, is that the, there's the communication side of uh, talking about climate change, especially its impacts. It's a missed opportunity because we can associate those things today. And so much of the rhetoric we hear around climate change, and you hear it, and even the public health officials, it's it's all of these hypothetical in 20 years and 50 years, we're going to see this increase in deaths, but not too many people have died of the sea level rise and, you know, maybe hurricane events, but in flooding events, they associate a flooding event where people have died to climate change. And, you know, I know the risk of getting morbid in trying to find communication strategies, but I think decisions are made, policies are created, funding happens because of things that are happening today. And I, and yeah, I'm no. towards you, but it's like <clears throat> so much of the rhetoric is hypothetical. And we're, I think we're, we're already there. It doesn't have to be hypothetical. Absolutely. And even I mean, Arizona, again, is ahead of the country on recording the heat related health impacts. But I think even we could do a better job of it. And certainly if you took what we're doing and applied it to other states, I think you'd see a, a clear picture. And like you said, having that accurate information is really critical for public health agencies and federal funding to actually point those dollars towards things that can save lives and improve health outcomes. So when you have these extreme heat events and you hear of these deaths associated with these heat waves, a lot of times it's inner city and a lot of times it's senior citizens who are just kind of cut off. And this plays into issues of social justice and environmental equity. Could you kind of explain how those issues come into play with extreme heat? Yeah. And that, so extreme heat is absolutely like other climate impacts has a climate justice or social equity component that we need to look at. I would say it's maybe even more nefarious with extreme heat, because again, if a flood or a hurricane happens, you get those impactful visual kind of media things and the news stories where you can actually see the, the flood damage to the property and the house is destroyed. Extreme heat, a lot of folks who can afford air conditioning or cars or work in places that are indoors and in air conditioned. If there's a heat wave, they might be a little bit hot on their walk to the car, but then they get home and they're fine the whole time. And so the heat wave doesn't really impact them. But there's certainly vulnerable populations like those that can't have, can't afford an air conditioner, those that are outdoor workers, those that have lower health you know, lower health anyway, um, due to maybe socioeconomic reasons. And those are really um, the populations that we, we need to be concerned about. Maybe the ones that are have no other option than to walk or bicycle to work and there's a heat wave going on and um, it puts them at risk. So yeah, there's definitely a climate justice component to that. And when the heat waves occur, and you could imagine the homeless populations too, those um, if those are impacting those more vulnerable populations, you know, are they are those impacts being recorded properly? And are those people able to let the decision makers know what's going on as well? And we know that there's a huge disconnect between when vulnerable populations are impacted and kind of the decisions made that could increase their resilience. Again, I always get so morbid with some of these topics, but you think of when a heat wave hits and then after the fact, when people come and look at why did this happen? Why did these people die? And as a planner, it must be interesting for you too, independent of climate change, but how you plan for better communities and it, this issue of climate justice. But like some of the materials that you shared with me that, you know, doing some background, how important social cohesion is 
and it's so important in other ways too, but something simply like, is your family live in the same city? So if a heat wave's coming, they can come and get grandpa and take them someplace else. Or, you know, are you even interactive with your neighbors? And so many people that have been like actually died because they were just left alone in these situations and they didn't have a social infrastructure to take care of them. And that's just not climate change. It's like a healthy functioning city has those things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and we're really bad at measuring that. So we have like social vulnerability index and a couple of other ways to map out kind of demographic vulnerabilities, but we don't have as good of ways to understand at the city level, kind of that social cohesion part. And so certainly kind of civic institutions and um, nonprofits and religious institutions can play a large role in that. And I think we need to lean into them as much as we can to help increase that social cohesion at the neighborhood level. Because like you said, if no one's checking on the elderly resident or the next door neighbor during a heat wave, that's when they're probably going to be most vulnerable for it. I remember in Paris, this was like probably 2006 or something, when they had that massive heat wave and something like 10,000 or 15,000 people died. Did that come into the planning conversations here in the U.S.? Like, look what happened there. Was that an issue? Yeah, that's interesting. So there was the Paris one. Um, in the 90s, we had the Chicago heat wave that was well written about and documented. I would say still not really, it did not really impact the urban planning profession. Again, part of that is because the urban planning profession broadly has always used historic data to plan for the future. And that's one of the big things that we're looking at right now is how to use climate change projections and climate science um, and get the urban planning profession and other, you know, the other professions involved in city building and design um, to look at those projections and to use forward looking information because um, we've been really good at kind of planning for the city of the past and not so much planning for the city of the future using projections. So, so again, those are, I, I would say from what I understand and from the people I've talked to, those were looked at as blips and not so much as something that they should be concerned about as the future at the time that they occurred. I think certainly now people are looking back at those events and kind of relooking at the lessons learned and seeing what they can do differently in the future. Public health, obviously, is number one issue, but I, I want to just toss out, I'm just toss them out at you and I want you to explain how extreme heat will impact these sectors. So let's just talk about energy and water use. What will it mean for those sectors? Yeah, so that's a big one that we're concerned about in the Southwest, but obviously across the country too. A lot of the strategies that we would do climate adaptation to extreme heat will either increase energy or water usage. And so you can imagine planting more trees to increase urban forestry to decrease the urban heat island effect uses water. Even if you plant native trees in the Southwest, um, there's still going to be a water impact for that. And on the other end, places like New York City that are looking at ensuring that the low-income residents have air conditioners so that when the temperatures kind of keep increasing past that threshold, if they don't do insulation in the older building stock, um, those air conditioners are going to use additional energy too. What about other urban infrastructure, things that I'm not really bringing up? How does extreme heat factor into that? Yeah, so there's a ton of, <laughs> it depends on the city, but there's a ton of things to think about. Kind of the most striking example would be like up in Phoenix, Arizona, where um, the airport gets shut down um, if it gets too hot because the planes aren't designed to to take off at certain temperature thresholds. That doesn't occur too frequently now, but you could expect to see things like that occur a little bit more frequently in the future. Um, that's a pretty extreme example. I would say, think about the amount of money that cities spend on things like bus stops, covered bus stops, or we installed light rail here in Tucson, Arizona, and installed a lot of expensive um, light rail stops for those and designed them with art and um, all of that. And kind of thinking broadly about uh, infrastructure and government spending, have those things been designed with enough shade and enough um, kind of comfort for the climate of the future? And then other things too, like a lot of municipalities are looking at green infrastructure. Are they planting the right plants that are going to survive in a hotter future? So a lot, a lot of those things are definitely impacted. Here's a little regional factoid. We, Vlad and I both live here in Tucson and when you hear about Phoenix being 115 degrees, typically in Tucson, even though we're farther south, it's probably about 105 here. We're, we're actually much brisker than in the summer than Phoenix because we're actually a higher elevation and I think some other quirks. So, <laughs> And what about landscape and urban ecology? What are the impacts there? Yeah, so that that's a, an important one, too. So we do spend a lot of money on urban ecology, urban landscaping, um, both kind of on the public sector and then the private sector, too, does landscaping for stores, 
offices, all of that. Questions that we should be asking that we're not typically asking right now um, are, are the plants that we're planning, the plants that will survive in the future and thrive and do very well. You know, microclimates play a lot of role and that landscape architects are already really good at looking at microclimates, but kind of looking more broadly at those recommended plant lists that we hand out to different firms and um, neighborhood associations on what they should be planting. Are those the plants that have just done well in the past or are those the plants that are going to do well in the future? So, and we kind of want to think about like the native wildlife and all of those things that are impacted too with extreme heat. And there's definitely um, research that's shown that not only the urban heat island effect, but also climate change is impacting and changing um, kind of how the urban ecology looks. This is where things kind of get messed up too, is a, a responsible urban planner working in a city, they plant more native wildlife, more native vegetation that's going to do well with watering and all that. But now we start seeing some of these maps of transition zones. Are people in your sector starting to think like that? Well, maybe you need to plant these kind of trees, even though they're not necessarily native right now, the climate 10, 20, 30 years from now, they're going to do much better. Are you hearing that conversation in regards to landscape ecology? Yeah, absolutely. And again, landscape architects have already done a really good job of looking at what what plants are appropriate for certain places. I think um, the conversation needs to be broadened out to other decision makers, though. And so we at the University of Arizona, we worked with a local homeowners association and they were interested in climate impacts and um, kind of what types of things they could do as a homeowners association to plan for the climate of the future. And when we looked at their plant list, we certainly took some of the plants off and then recommended some more hardy plants. So kind of in a lot of places, it'll shorten the plant list that you're able to um, recommend. But like you mentioned, in more temperate places, it may open up a new envelope of plants. But certainly some of them aren't going to be the native plants that are native to the surrounding area. So kind of thinking through those impacts, too. As an aside here, I've had some landscape architects on, and I'm sure you deal with them quite frequently. And just there's this tension that some of them, if given the opportunity to think more broadly, working with a city, yeah, they're going to talk like you, you, you're doing. But so many landscape architects work on sort of a parcel by parcel basis. It'll be hired by a client. And so what the vegetation they might put on that on site has nothing to do with the broader conversation that the city's having. So and you landscape architects out there, <laughs> if you're being sensitive to those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hesitating because well, I, just <laughs> I work uh, in a school of landscape architecture and planning. So we're in right now my office and half the faculty are landscape architects. So and I would say I would say that we um, that we and those uh, faculty members certainly train the students coming out of our program to think of climate impacts. So I think even those site by site decisions are super important because a city isn't built at once by one person it's all of those little decisions that kind of add up to the greater whole too so so if we can kind of broaden that education and make sure that those little um, sites are being designed correctly too it's going to add up to to much um, more resilient future landscape architects know i show them a lot of love it's like the, the one of the best design professions to deal with climate adaptation but you know i can have some criticisms Okay, some more of the information you sent me, I actually want to read this so I get this straight, is that the National Climate Assessment estimates that there'll be 20 to 30 more days over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And it occurs to me I have a lot of international listeners. Sorry, guys, I can't do the Celsius translation fast enough. By mid-century, a recent study projects that the annual number of days with a heat index above 100 degrees Fahrenheit will double, and the days with a heat index above 105 degrees will triple nationwide when compared to the end of the 20th century. Okay, I look at that, I see the statistics... If you're trying to communicate that to the public, they roll their eyes and they just, it's like some fantasy talk. And maybe you could bring that down. What are the real world implications when we read statistics like that out of these reports? Yeah, that is a good question. And that's something that the climatologists I work with are are certainly thinking through right now. So um, again, we've created climate profiles for different communities in the Southwest through um, a NOAA-funded Regional Integrated Science Assessment Center called CLEMAS here at the University of Arizona. And one of those, one of the purposes of creating those um, community climate profiles is to do exactly what you're saying, kind of take that statistics mumbo-jumbo that doesn't really mean anything to the average person, let alone like a city planner, and really talk through what does it mean for them. And a lot of times it simply translates into how much should you care about this issue? So kind of if you're in a place that's going to experience more heat during the night and less nighttime cooling, that has a really big public health impact. So kind of getting those um, planners and 
city decision makers to be aware that that's something that they should be thinking through for their population. So I think like you like you mentioned, a lot of those statistics are important to have. And again, that accurate information is really important to have, but you need to translate it down to what does it mean at the local level and um, does it align with local values and how are those, what are those local agencies actually able to do about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on the report I read recently, but the, the notion of, you know, it'll lead to an X number amount of emergency room visits or less days that children go on a playground. And I thought that was really kind of helpful, like people visualizing, like, how does this actually, what does it mean from my real world? Yeah, exactly. And that's where you take that information. Again, it's still, it's accurate, it's credible, but you're actually, you're actually translating that climate science into impacts that people care about. And I think that's where you're going to get a lot more interest and action on it. If you, again, connect it to things that people care about at the local levels. And again, one thing that I I found resonates a lot when you talk to city planners or um, residents about extreme heat is just the idea that, again, we want to prevent those mortalities. Um, but most people don't see themselves dying of extreme heat. So you kind of mentioned that. And then you also talk about like, all right, well, in your own life, like what time do you walk your dog? When are you able to take your kids out to the playground? And kind of thinking through as it gets hotter, are you going to be able to do those things as much? Or how is that going to impact your life? And then what can the city do to make your life more comfortable? It's interesting, after moving to Tucson, we're, we're fortunate to have a mountain range just north of us that goes up to 9,000 feet. And so it's Tucsonians. In the summer, we don't hike in the lower elevations in the hills and the foothills because it's 105 degrees. We all go up to the top at 9,000 feet where it's 70 degrees. And then in the wintertime, it flips. We do our lowland hikings. And so there's an adjustment and we'll probably see more of that. Okay, lad, I want to talk about some solutions here and let's talk about climate adaptation strategies. Kind of walk us through how, what, what can people be doing? What can they be thinking about? And if, you know, we got local government people listening to this, how do they even approach this? Yeah, so a colleague at Arizona State University, Sarah Miro, and I recently did a review paper that's uh, looking at kind of how planners and how local governments have looked at extreme heat planning. And what we found is there's two major categories that are occurring right now. So one of those categories is kind of the local governance perspective, um, looking at risk management. And so um, imagine like your emergency management operators or your hazard mitigation planners, things like using early warning systems and connecting with the National Weather Service for the heat index and things like that. And that's really where that public health and communication and kind of education component comes in. So that's one big bucket that uh, that is certainly being worked on. The other one from a planning perspective, um, that's probably more the realm of um, urban planning and landscape architecture is looking at the design of the built environment and the planning of the design of the built environment to mitigate the increases of extreme heat from climate change. And then also the things that we already understand about the urban heat island effect, thinking through what we can do with the built environment to make sure we certainly don't contribute to increasing the urban heat island effect, but potentially even decreasing it in certain places. So that would be things like rearranging the land use in urban form um, to maybe let more air ventilation go through. So that might be something that cities with a number of large buildings like New York City or Chicago would think about. Maybe in the desert southwest or more uh, suburban communities that are less dense overall, looking at things like preserving natural open space and kind of the, par- the placement of new parks and things like that. To again, kind of decrease the amount of urban heat island effect that we have. Another thing, um, and this would be the top strategy that cities are using or thinking about at least is um, the installation of green infrastructure and kind of increasing urban forestry canopy. So I kind of put an asterisk after that one because it's become almost the silver bullet of um, extreme heat that people will say, okay, we are going to have an extreme heat problem. Just increase the urban forestry canopy, the um, number of trees that we have. Science has shown that it does have an impact on it, but I don't think it's the silver bullet that everyone thinks it is. And again, kind of thinking of those trade-offs that we have to make with urban forestry. So my be a little bit of water increase usage or maybe a lot depending on what species you do and then again if you just have a blanket percentage number that you're trying to increase are you planting those trees in areas where people actually walk and will enjoy the shade are you planting them in areas where the most vulnerable populations are they all be kind of concentrated in places where there's already a lot of tree canopy so kind of thinking through those things a little bit more carefully new york city i I did an episode there and they had a really thoughtful approach to like their tree planting efforts in poor areas of the city and i think they were very sensitive and a lot of it had to do with the heat island effect they're just they're trying to cool some of these areas that won't typically get it so yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big, I'm a big plant lover, tree lover. <laughs> so I don't want that to come off. But I think, I think we're, a lot of folks are looking for simple answers for a lot of climate impacts, not just extreme heat. And you look at the nuances and the trade-offs that are involved. And obviously, as your other guests on the podcast have talked about, there's no simple solutions for a lot of the things that we're looking at. I'd say another, speaking of trade-offs, another thing that cities have looked at is reflectivity and changing the building materials that they're using. So some cities are looking at reflective roofs to kind of cool the buildings off and reflect that heat back into the atmosphere. Los Angeles, in the last couple of years, you may have heard of it, has looked at and installed um, reflective paving on some of their streets as an experiment. And so initially the idea was that if you paint the uh, streets of reflective color, that uh, heat would be bounced right back off into the atmosphere and kind of mitigate the heat increase that's occurring with those streets. Some colleagues, Arianne Middle at ASU and Kelly Turner at UCLA, did a study uh, just recently though that showed that that reflective painting actually reflects the heat right back onto pedestrians and onto the buildings right next to the um, streets, right? So for the pedestrians walking those areas, they could feel seven or 10 degrees um, Fahrenheit warmer on the sidewalk. So again, that's probably a trade-off we don't want to make a lot of cities. You know, I actually did that. When I did that whole California DAP series, I went and I walked with one of the guys working in the city and it was just like a maybe 500 yards of that material. But I'm I don't think it was the reflective material. It was actually the material that it was made of. And so there was some reflection going on, but it wasn't just like some white street. And he had one of those temperature guns and we were right next to the regular pavement and that. And it was, you know, 10 degrees cooler. And just standing above it, I don't think I felt any hotter. I, I think that might have been the material, but that's that's kind of depressing when you think you've identified a solution and it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. And I, w- I would just say kind of as we look at extreme heat and as we start to test things out, we need to have these pilots. So, so certainly these experiments are incredibly important for cities to do because we need to find creative solutions and kind of entrepreneurial ways to innovate and you know, find solutions to make ourselves more sustainable and resilient. I think the important part is making sure that we have evaluation, like what um, Arianne Middle and um, Kelly Turner did afterwards, where we actually see if these things are working and be able to say, okay, if they're not working, let's move away from it and try something different. So this notion of green infrastructure, it's always been the sort of solution to everything. And even back in my early days, I was really involved with smart growth issues. And everyone was trying to get the suburbanization of cities, like this awful thing. And I agree too, just, you know, transportation and all that. But I just wonder, you know, as climate just gets warmer, suburbanization in that development is going to be sort of a, a recommended way to deal, especially with extreme heat. We should be spreading out more. And all of a sudden, all the progress that we've been making to rethink living in the city. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I've actually heard this kind of strain of thought start to, in the last couple of years, um, come through too. And sometimes even from environmentally progressive neighbors that live in areas that they don't want to see developed. So they kind of look at an urban heat island map that shows the hotter and cooler areas of the city. And it's it can be easy to come up with the recommendation that okay, well, those suburban areas with huge yards don't have a big urban heat island effect. Maybe the whole city should look like that. Therefore, don't make it more dense. I think obviously that's that's a, a maladaptation. And it's also not accurate because it's not just those specific areas. It's the conglomeration of the entire urban form at the regional scale that creates the urban heat island effect. Even those even those suburban lots are contributing to the heat that's occurring in the center, kind of thinking through all of those things. And if you if you look closely, not just at urban heat island maps, but measuring the ambient air temperature, you can actually create very comfortable places in dense areas if they're shaded properly and have trees and all of that. So so if you look at um, Tucson's urban heat island map, actually, our downtown and our um, University of Arizona campus are actually some of the cooler areas of the city. And you wouldn't necessarily think that and certainly think that through the conventional wisdom of kind of denser areas or hotter, right? This is coming, though, even though you just debunked a lot of these myths about the suburbs that I can just see a real estate developer at some county level meeting wanting to build a hundred acre development. And he's going to start using rhetoric like, well, 
this is good adaptation that I've got here. Look at uh, one house for three acres and it's going to be cooler than look at those environmentalists. They want to just put all that development in the city and that's just, it's coming. <laughs> Some real lazy real estate developer is going to be using adaptation as a selling point to, to do these kind of things. I know it's coming. Potentially. Although I would say, so I worked with the urban land institutes on, um, the scorched report that they released last summer, looking at how the real estate industry can deal with extreme heat. And that report, we certainly made the same kind of argument that the real estate industry has an important role to play in the development of cities, obviously. And we, we offered some solutions for both suburban and kind of more urban development on mitigating extreme heat. A lot of the developers, at least when I was living in Georgia, they weren't reading reports like Scorched. Great report, but <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about. The planners and the, the real estate developers, they could be living on different planets sometimes. But that that's Georgia. You know, that's my experience. Maybe it's different. <laughs> I'm going to get some emails from real estate developers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> All right. Don't get me in trouble, Doug. <laughs> You've alluded to some of these tools and resources, but again, what are some of the specific resources that people can tap into to deal with extreme heat? Yeah. So that's one of the problems with planning for extreme heat right now is that uh, there's not a lot of resources out there. And up until this year, when three reports were released, one by the Urban Land Institute, one by the Red Cross Red um, Crescent, and then another by the Union of Concerned Scientists, They've, all three of those uh, organizations released pretty big extreme heat reports that made a big impact on a uh, planning profession. But before that, there had been a study done looking at kind of climate adaptation resources available to planners. This was a 2016 report. Only 6% of the resources that they surveyed had any mention or specific advice for how cities um, dealt with extreme heat. So it's something, again, that history of us thinking about sea level rise a little bit longer and flooding a little bit longer as a climate impact. Extreme heat is something that's kind of as it's recently come to the forefront, obviously, there's going to be a lot less resources for it. So I'd say cities are looking at urban heat island maps as a starting point a lot of times. So I did a research project with Clemus looking at how cities in the southwest are using their urban heat island maps. We only found a handful of cities that had urban heat island maps, and most of them were created at a certain point in time by satellite drive data. So kind of an approximation for the hot and cool areas of the city. One shortcoming is that it doesn't really tell you at the site-specific level what you should do about heat. So it doesn't help with that. It helps with kind of a broad understanding. But to get those maps, you have to have them created specifically for your city. And that's something that a lot of planners don't have the resources or the capability to do right now. One thing that we are doing currently is a survey of planners across the country on extreme heat and kind of seeing what types of tools and resources they need, what types of strategies they might be taking right now, and kind of what their perception of the risk is. And so that survey is ongoing at this moment, but certainly one of the things that the preliminary results of the survey have shown is that no staff is assigned to extreme heat as a risk. Um, so there's no one really responsible for thinking about it at the local government level. And then also the most cities um, we surveyed don't have access to any kind of information on extreme heat other than kind of general climate projection. So within their own city, they don't have those urban heat island maps um, to understand kind of the hotter or the cooler areas that they should be focusing on. What's the extreme heat network? Yeah, so through the, through a couple of the research projects I've been working on, we saw this need for basically people to be connected on the topic of extreme heat. And so it started off with the communities in the Southwest that we were working with, um, just as a way for them to... Uh, share information about the best practices, what they're doing at the local level with urban heat island maps and thinking about extreme heat. But we've had a lot of interest from cities across the country. So we've had a webinar series. Um, we've had folks from New York City and across the country kind of talk about what their strategies for dealing with extreme heat are. It's been interesting. It didn't, it, it started off as kind of a research project that's turned into a community of practitioners and researching researchers looking at extreme heat. And again, some of the strategies we didn't get to get into too much, but this a notion of an emergency management system with extreme heat. And I think about, again, going back to Georgia and the city of Atlanta, and I'm sure they still do this, but what really worked well was the pollution uh, system that they had in place. Obviously, they were getting information from the EPA, but we had the ozone alert days. And so you had like, oh, was it a purple day? And you know, no, don't go outside and exercise. And it seemed like such an integrated system that, you know, the local TV stations and people around the city would know, oh, it's a purple day. I mean, to get that sort of penetration 
on a message around pollution is so amazing. And I know when there's a heat wave coming through, people tend to hear about it, but like on a consistent basis, is our city doing this really well when it comes to extreme heat? They've got the city really thinking about it, or is that something we kind of need to work on? Because to me, what I'm getting at too is it seems like such a great communication opportunity on top of like talk, bringing up climate change every single time you have a kind of a extreme heat alert, bring that up. But are there any cities doing it well? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would point to our sister city to the north, Phoenix, Arizona, again, and say that they're really the leaders in connecting that public health and kind of emergency management systems on extreme heat. And they have very sophisticated kind of education campaign, communication campaign around extreme heat. Dave Hondula is a researcher at Arizona State University who's done a lot of work in that area. I've worked with El Paso, Texas on a research project, and they've recently looked at kind of ways to increase their public awareness around extreme heat too. And that was through NOAA's NIHIS program, and that stands for the National Integrated Heat Health Information System. And so um, NOAA is doing a lot of great work in this area, too, with their climate program office, kind of answering that exact question. How can they broaden the understanding of extreme heat as a risk? And um, what can they what kind of tools can they give cities to increase awareness of it? I occasionally ask listeners if they have questions that they want to share. And I got a few from and she was a recent guest, Dr. Meredith Wiggins. And she asked, and this is just, what city in the world do you think might be the first to be abandoned due to extreme heat? Because you hear about some of these places in the Middle East, 120 degrees, 130. Are you hearing that conversation at all, that entire sort of cities might have to be abandoned? So there's always sensational papers written about this. And there was one a few years back about Phoenix being absolutely decimated <laughs> due to extreme heat and droughts. And you've seen, seen similar kind of hit pieces on cities like Miami being the next Atlantis. I'd say this is just my personal take. I'm not a fan of pieces that kind of promote despair and <laughs> take away hope from people and also take away the good actions that are occurring at the local level. I would say certainly there are places that are going to get much more uncomfortable, but I haven't heard anybody talking about places being uninhabitable. I would say, again, we need to look at those um, maladaptations that we could potentially do unintentionally for extreme heat. And so there was a recent story about a Middle Eastern city that was looking at, they implemented actually air conditioning sidewalks, uncovered sidewalks, to because it was so hot that people weren't able to kind of comfortably walk outside. So obviously that's a huge energy waste. It may increase the comfort, but if it's not covered in the sidewalks, it's just kind of air conditioning going out to the atmosphere too. So, so kind of thinking through those, again, those energy water questions and making sure that we do appropriate solutions that increase resilience, but then also don't increase the cause of climate change that's causing the heat to be worse in the first place. This is purely anecdotal that you can share with me, but you're hearing more people talk about, well, I'm not going to move to this coastal area because of sea level rise. Have you heard people saying, you know what, I'm not moving to a certain area because of the extreme heat risk? So I haven't heard, so I, I don't speak to potential residents of, of the Southwest, but I would say, I would say I have heard concern from cities and not just the cities in the Southwest, but obviously all cities are kind of looking at, you know, their economic development potential and how attractive they are for businesses and new residents and here at the U of A college students. And certainly people are thinking about those climate change questions really seriously. And so I, th I think whether it's Miami kind of rebranding itself due to the sea level rise, um, I know that the cities in the Southwest I've worked with are very aware that they have to work on heat and kind of continue to show that they're making progress on it. So I think I think that's something that the cities are, are thinking of. And I, again, that's a very recent thing. Just in the last year, I've heard cities kind of thinking about what they can do with their downtowns and in already hot areas to make them more hospitable during the summer. And as a planner, you, you know, there's these magazines or these articles that come out to talk about the top 50 places to live. And the one more thoughtful ones talk about, well, it has good public transit, good schools. Have you heard of any that are factoring in climate change in the sense that, well, no, Tucson would rank in the top 50, but because of the extreme heat risk, we don't recommend it. Are any of those lists popping up anywhere? Not yet, but that sounds like something one of your listeners could maybe <laughs> maybe work on. <laughs> I know. 
but, but yeah, again, I, I absolutely have heard cities starting to think about that economic development potential from a climate change lens. And there have been a few cities I've seen um, in the Midwest specifically kind of talk up their um, future climate comfort. And so they're kind of positioning themselves well in the future. So, so I'd say as you see more cities doing that, I'm sure you're going to see more cities in response um, kind of talk up what they're doing to mitigate the impacts from climate change too. Duluth. Duluth. <laughs> it's Minnesota, right? Duluth, Minnesota. The New York Times article saying they're, they're going to be a, all the climate people are going to go there. Well, yeah, when hell freezes over. <laughs> but that's, that's just me. <laughs> On that note, I, I, I've been criticized a little bit. I moved to Tucson about a year and a half ago, and some people are just like, you know, why are you moving there, you climate change guy? And, I mean, have you lived in D.C. over the winter? It's miserable. It's just miserable. So <laughs> it's uh, it's the coldest day of the year here in Tucson, and I think the high of today is going to be like 62. So, you know. <laughs> it's freezing. <laughs> <laughs> We're all bundled up, and it's delightful. So to kind of wrap this up, you know, I talk a lot about how the adaptation universe is really evolving and you are a planner. And so what's your take on how urban planning is doing on in the adaptation area? And, and what's your impression of the adaptation universe? Yeah, I mean, you haven't gone to the national adaptation forums or anything like that, but there's obviously a lot of overlap with what they do and what you, you're doing. So what's your just gut take on how things are kind of unfolding in your field and adaptation in general? Yeah. So from an urban planning perspective, urban planners are all, already have to come out educated and understanding kind of demographic data and transportation projections and understanding connections between land use and transportation and think about public health impacts. And there's a whole number of things that um, planners are responsible for already. And so one of my interests is how climate change as a topic fits into that whole suite of things that we have to be aware of and think of comprehensively at the city level. I think most universities now that have planning programs have integrated climate change as a topic into a lot of courses. I teach a climate action planning course here at the U of A, so they get a course specifically on that. And so I think kind of seeing that mainstreamed as a topic that all planners come out educated for is certainly like one of my goals that no planner that leaves our program you know, they will they will come out understanding um, at least like what what climate change is, how to mitigate it, some of the strategies to adapt for it, and then understanding those resources, like whether it's the National Climate Assessment or the IPCC report. They don't need to be climatologists and do the projections themselves, but at least be aware enough to kind of take those projections and use them at the local level. So I think hopefully that's where the planning profession is moving. I've seen some um, indications of that. And I certainly have seen two uh, students looking for a career in urban planning, specifically planning for climate adaptation. So I think that'll become just one of those uh, specialties that planners do. And um, we already have planners that focus just on transportation or on urban design. And so I think um, certainly we already have folks that are looking at kind of a career in urban planning for climate adaptation, too. So I have a lot of students who listen who are interested in becoming involved with adaptation what's your sort of pitch to them this is your program this university of arizona this is a good place for them if when they get done they'll be in the thick of adaptation yeah absolutely and the great thing about the program here at the university of arizona is that we have so many climatologists and um, internationally renowned kind of uh, scholars that have worked on climate change that you know the students in the planning program will certainly be educated in the urban planning profession but we also have access to all of those folks too and so it's kind of a great um, collaboration that they can take those other courses and learn about the science behind climate change too if they're interested and so you personally do you feel you're part of a larger kind of adaptation profession do you feel that way do you feel connected out there yeah, so I would, I guess I would identify first and foremost as an urban planner above everything else, but I certainly feel like I'm an urban planner that specializes in climate change. Yeah, and we didn't get into it, but you've, you have been very involved with the city of Tucson. You've got, you've got your hands dirty in a lot of the nuts and bolts of how cities are run. And so, yeah, that's just a, you're not just an academic, but you're actually out there kind of providing that professional advice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, a lot of what informs the stuff that I look at now as a researcher is kind of those practical questions of how cities are, again, incorporating those climate change questions into the plans and policies that determine how the, uh, the future of the city is going to be. Okay, so since we're both Tucsonians. 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 What's your favorite restaurant to eat in Tucson? Oh, gosh, you're going to get me in trouble for this. <laughs> There's so many good ones. I'd say a classic is El Charo. 
So kind of nuts and bolts, classic um, Mexican food here in Tucson. It's been the longest operating Mexican restaurant, I think, in the United States. But my recent favorite is um, Rajin Ramen because I lived in Japan and that's the best Japanese food you can get in Tucson now. I totally agree with you, El Charo. I found that and it I it's hard to describe because if you think Tex-Mex or other Mexican food, it is different here in Arizona. It is good. It is yummy food. And there's like this Native American, Mexican mix too. They do some really unique things here. And we're right next door to New Mexico and we have the hatch green chili season too. So it's, yep. <laughs> it's been awesome eating here. So, all right, good recommendations and great prickly pear margaritas, which is kind of a unique thing too. It's a beautiful flavor. Okay, so I'm trying to ask this question now, and I forgot to ask Judge Alice Hill. Who has been the most influential person in your adaptation career? Yeah, so I'm going to cheat. Can I use two people? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, so that's tricky. Um, I would say for the climate adaptation side, it would certainly be Greg Garfin. He's a climatologist here at the U of A, and he's my dissertation advisor, but kind of learned all of the climate change aspects and how to integrate that into planning um, from him. So he was a big influence. I would say from the planning side, I'm going to go back to my master's program. And um, Barbara Becker was the director of the planning program at the time. And so certainly I'm kind of cut from the mold of looking at um, planning from a comprehensive way that um, she taught in the program. So those would be the two people I'd, I'd think of. Awesome. Vlad, you, you know it's coming. Final question. If you could recommend anyone to come on the podcast, who would it be? about this question because i'm a listener of your podcast and i knew that it was coming and just like all of your other guests i'm afraid of who i'll leave out if i pick one person but just one he's holding up his one finger at me guys um yeah so i would i would say um so i thought about this i'd say diana liverman is a scholar here at the university of arizona and i recommend her because she's been working on climate change for longer than anyone else i've known she's one of the first scholars in climate change she's done work with ipcc but she's also interested in kind of the impacts at the local level and she's done a lot of work kind of elevating the work of um, female scholars in climate change so i think she would be a really interesting person to talk to it's legend. Okay, lad, this has been awesome. It's so excellent to be able to record with people in person, especially people that I, I know somewhat well. And you're doing some great work here. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Doug. Glad to have you here in my office. <laughs> Turn my office into a little recording studio, but it's been exciting to share the work on Extreme Heat and um, see where it goes next. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Lad for coming on and sharing his expertise on extreme heat. It's a climate impact that does not get enough attention, and I have been guilty of not highlighting it myself. You can expect to hear more in the future on this topic. I'm especially interested in covering how it's unfolding in countries without the resources of the United States. I'm very encouraged, though, by the work that's being done. I didn't realize the scope of efforts trying to deal with extreme heat, and there are many resources out there for those who need to address these impacts in their communities. I highly recommend you take a look at my show notes and see some of the resources that Lad has shared. All the links to the reports he mentioned in the episode are in the notes. Okay, some final housekeeping. I want to thank all my supporters who have generously donated to the podcast. Thank you. This is a small-time operation. Your support is critical. For those who are regular listeners and are looking for a charity to donate to, consider America Daps and be part of telling these adaptation stories. I want to do a personal shout out to Jacob Boyce and Amanda Taylor. They have been listening to the podcast and sharing it on their social media. Thanks guys for the kind words and I hope you continue to listen. And thanks to everyone else who promotes the show. Word of mouth recommendations are the most important way for a podcast to grow. And if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing something new with streaming TV at Simpatico Studios. I'm sure many of you have questions about this, but check out the link in my show notes and, and you can learn more. Definitely sign up if you feel you have some adaptation work you want to share on a brand new streaming platform. Okay, don't forget to check out the podcast in the classroom initiative we're doing. I have heard from many professors using America Adapts in their classroom. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for eight of my episodes. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadapts.org. Yes, it's a personal mission to get more professors and teachers using podcasts in the classroom. Your students will thank you for it and I'll compliment your work really well. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and I really enjoy it. And I think you will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast, but my own experiences and adaptation. 
I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me at the website, americadapts.org. Also, what is very helpful, if you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts in your app on your mobile phone, if you could go in and give a review or rating, there's two ways. They give you a five-star rating. Going in there, just look at your phone right now, look down, go to my podcast that you have there listed and, and rank it, rate it, please. And if you want to take the time to write a review, that's even better. It gives people some information about what the podcast is all about. Please, it's always very helpful. And don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join. And I'll approve you right away. Okay, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. You have an idea for a guest. Let me know. I keep hearing from people all the time with great ideas. It is the highlight of my week hearing from you. And sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.